0: Genesis again. This is Journey Through Genesis Part 21. And we are, I thought about sitting on the couch, but I thought, you know, I might get lazy and lay on the couch and that. I'll just go ahead and stand. Um, Journey Through Genesis Part 21. We're finishing up Genesis 22, so it's kind of part three of that. Then we'll do Genesis 23, and we'll start Genesis 24 tonight. I hope to cover this territory. So, let me say a prayer and we'll jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for the book of Genesis. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts, enlighten us, God, give us revelation, show us truth that's tucked away in these amazing scriptures. And for this, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. I'm sorry you can't see the screen back here. It's just part of the props for the presentation on Sunday. So let's look at verse 19. So Abraham, this is Genesis 22, verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, this is just like he had foretold. These are the guys that when he went up to the top of the mountain with Isaac, he said, me and the lad are coming back. Well, these are the guys. Sure enough, here they come. They came together, and they uh, came to these guys, and then they took off to Beersheba. Verse twenty. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, "Indeed Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor: Huz his firstborn, Buzz his brother. We almost named Alexander and Caleb. Huz and Buzz, but Huz his firstborn, Buzz his brother. <laughs> Camuel the father of Aram, Chasad, uh, Hazu, Pildash." Uh, these other two, and Bethuel begot Rebekah. That's significant. These eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Gahem, Thash, and Mecha. So now we're in chapter 23. We'll start with verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose age is given at her death. She's a very significant character in the eyes of the Lord, highly regarded. Another interesting point to this, the Bible does not say for us, to look to some very incredible women in the Bible, like Mary, the mother of Jesus. Like, you should be like Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or you should be like Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. But twice in your Bible, Isaiah 51, 1 through 2, and 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6, Sarah is mentioned by name as an example of a godly woman that we should look to. She is just an exceptional Biblical character, and so that's worth noting. Look at verse 2. So Sarah died in Kerjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is interesting. Abraham mourned for Sarah. She was his life partner on this incredible journey of faith. She was with him every step of the way. James Montgomery Boyce states the wording is such that it suggests that Abraham set himself deliberately to fulfill, to perform all the functions culturally acceptable at the time of a mourner. So he went about the, the rites, the rituals, the cultural expectations of mourning for his life partner. This great man of faith. The father of the faithful, the friend of God, wept, cried, wept for the loss of his Sarah. Again, Boyce points out something that I just think is worth mentioning. To weep for a loved one is to show, one, that we have been close to that individual. Two, that the loss of that individual is felt by us. Three, the death. That death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And number four, that sin has brought this sadness upon the human race. We acknowledge that. Interesting points. Look at verses 3 through 9. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the son of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people in the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zoar, for me. And he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now, let's stop right there. Abraham was not from Canaan. He was from Ur. But this seems to be beyond that. It's as if he understood that his home was really otherworldly, heavenly. He was saying, I'm not from here. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And it's also a recognition that the earth is the Lord's. The land really belonged to God. And Abraham was just a pilgrim and a sojourner just passing through. We see this with Moses. Moses talks about this in Leviticus 25. He talks about how the land that we're in, it really belongs to the Lord. David did the same thing in First Chronicles 29 and Psalm 39. This this land that, that I am inhabiting, it's really not mine. I love the idea. I mean, you can't get any more, uh, what's the word? Uh, there's only a limited amount of land. When I sold real estate, that was, you know, that's a big plus when you're selling real estate. There's only a limited supply of real estate. Not like you can go make some more real estate. And so real estate is a permanent thing. It's not going anywhere. And if you own some real estate, like that's a way of really saying, I got a hold of something. I've got some land. I mean, I might not have this. I might not have this. I might not have this. But I have some land. You can't take this land from me. And, and it's as if Abraham was saying, the earth is the Lord's. I just hold on loosely to this. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. I'm just a steward on this property. And I think that's a great way to look at our possessions in general. Uh, All this stuff doesn't have me. I may have it, but it all belongs to the Lord ultimately anyway. And I think that's what Abraham was saying. And so Abraham was after this particular piece of property, this cave. And so let's look at this, verses 10 through 16 now. Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which had uh, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Now this was a typical way of doing business in this culture. It was like this, this this dance they were doing, this negotiation dance. And these were gestures of kindness. I will give it to you. No, I will pay for it. And so here you have a a, a buyer and a seller, and they are they are negotiating. Ephron and Abraham followed the cultural customs of bargaining. Now, Abraham, and this is very good right here, this is good, Abraham acted honorably in the area of business, and that's a good lesson for all of us. Adam Clark makes this observation. They who, under the sanction of religion, trample underfoot the decent forms of civil respect, supposing that because... They are religious. They have a right to be rude. Totally mistake the spirit of Christianity. In dealing with business, I've told you this before. When we were looking to buy this building, we were in a lease over on Tiggy Du Plessis. And before we got approval to move into this building, my board said it would be good business for you to tell the owners of Tiggy Duplessis that we're looking to move. And I'm like, "Oh, but you know, but like what if we don't get the building and then we've like p- potentially burned that bridge?" And they're like, "No, Donovan, it would it just it's good business." And so I wish I could tell you I was like, "Yeah, let's tell them, you know." But I was like, he "Hesitate, you know, I don't know, you know. One in the hands better than two in the bush, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing." And they said, "No, it would just it's the thing to do out of respect." So I did it. And it ended up being a great thing. But to act honorably in business is something that you can never uh, underestimate. I've dealt with this in ministry uh, for years. Uh, when I go to negotiate some business with somebody, when I, they find out I'm a preacher and they find out I'm, we're doing this with the church, there's red flags that go up. Because there's been so many businesses burned by churches and preachers. And I'm not trying to cast stones. I, I, things can get tight, like just like that. Uh, but on the other hand, as there's no excuse for you know not handling it properly. And so Abraham, way back in the book of Genesis, is showing us that he was an honorable businessman in his day. And so I pray that LifePoint would always have you know a A one credit rating, and and people would say we love to do business with LifePoint. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to negotiate. We're not going to be, you know, roll over and play dead and you just take advantage of us. No, we're going to be good stewards. But at the same time, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. And if we say we're going to pay for it, we're going to pay for it. Can I get an amen? So being a good Christian means you take care of your business. Verses 17 through 20. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, And all the trees that were in the field which were within all the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. Let's go ahead, verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. It's like they got a survey. It's like the borders were marked off. They they got a title. They went to a closing. They went to settlement. They signed the paperwork. It was deeded to him. The text emphasizes that this property literally, technically was Abraham's by way of deed. In other words, not just because in faith God promised it to him but it was actually deeded to him. Now, that's significant. If this was the only piece of land Abraham would have ever owned in Canaan, it was proof positive that God's word was true and that Abraham's faith was real because that land had his name on it. He had the title deed to this land. Now, this cave at the field of Machpelah is where Isaac and Ishmael ended up burying their father, Abraham. You can see that in Genesis 25. Also, Isaac and Rebekah were buried there as well, Genesis 49. Jacob buried Leah there, Genesis 49. Joseph buried Jacob there. It became this Great tomb of the patriarchs, just fascinating the, the detail that's given in Genesis 23 when it comes to that cave, and we're going to see it throughout Genesis. Now, let's go to chapter 24. Are you with me? We've gone from 22 to 23. Now, we're in 24, we'll spend some time here. Verses 1 through 4, now, Abraham was old, well-advanced in age, And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family, and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, this was probably Eliezer, whom we saw some 60 years earlier, back in Genesis 15, this eldest servant in his house. Abraham was extremely concerned that his son Isaac not marry a Canaanite bride. So Abraham had Eliezer make this solemn, somber, serious, sacred oath. And Abraham linked it to the covenant that he was in with Almighty God. The one thing that separated Abraham from everybody else was his covenant relationship with Almighty God. And let me just say this. We may be different in so many ways, but the difference that makes all the difference is that we're in a covenant with Almighty God. If you've been born again, if you are a child of the living God, you you are in a covenant relationship with the Almighty, and that is the difference that makes all, All the difference. Not only in where we end up going to heaven, but in our walk down here on this earth. We are not like people who are not in a covenant relationship with God. Paul talked about how we used to be that way. He said we used to be like Gentiles. And we tend to think of that in terms of Jews and Gentiles. We're Gentiles. And then there are the ethnic descendants of Abraham who are Jews. But technically a Gentile, because think about it, Abraham, was he a Jew? He was just like everybody else until God separated him and pulled him into a covenant, right? So the ethnic descendants of Abraham were known as Jews, but the thing that made the difference was the covenant. So here's the deal. A Gentile technically is somebody who's not in a covenant relationship with God. And Paul points out how that we used to be like others in the world, Gentiles in the world, without hope, without God, outside the covenants of promise. But now we've been brought into a relationship with God through the covenants of Almighty God, through the blood of the Lamb, through Jesus Christ. So here's the bottom line. We walk in this natural world here. One day I'm going to heaven. This world is not my home. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm just pushing through. But I'm telling you, I still walk in this world, but I don't walk like everybody else because I have a Savior. I have a Lord. I have an almighty God who's sworn that your enemies are my enemies and my enemies are your enemies. I'm on your side. And if I'm for you, who can be against you? I have a God who is on my side. You have a God who is on your side. When you're facing difficulties, You're not by yourself. You're not alone. Yeah, you got friends, you got family, you got a church, but you got a God, right? And you got His holy angels who are working with you, who are working for you. God is for you, He's working for you. You're in a covenant relationship with God. And so we need to link everything we do to that covenant. That's what Abraham did. He said, Eliezer, listen, I want a wife for my son. This is the son of promise, and that's significant. We'll see that. This is the son of promise. There's a lot hinging on this next generation, and he's saying, I want you to get him a wife, and we're going to see that the angel of the Lord goes with Eleazar to help him get a wife. is that amazing? Now, some of you single people like, you need to cheer up, you know, because the angel of the Lord can go you a spouse in Jesus' name. Uh, So anyhow, here's the deal. He pulls in the covenant. Now, Adam Clark, the 18th century Methodist theologian, says this, and I don't want to make it awkward in here, but notice this. Regarding this custom, he says to him, he says, Put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of the earth. So by that particular custom regarding that, then he was saying he would have put his hand in uh, such a position, such a way that he would have... The, 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 the. Thank you. Clark argues that while this right may offend our sensibilities and may be revolting to us, when the nature of the covenant is considered of which circumcision was the sign, We at once perceived that this right could not be used without producing sentiments of reverence and godly fear. As the contracting party must know that the God of this covenant was a consuming fire. So when he swore that this was sacred, this was like, this was, this was a big deal. And so he's saying, swear to me. It's as if Abraham was like, I might not be here. I might die when this is all said and done. But you swear to me, Eliezer, God's watching you also. This is covenant business. This is sacred stuff. So look at verses 5 through 9. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. But I take, uh, must I... Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to. The, I'm I'm sorry, it just all discombobulated me right there for a moment. You know, kind of broke out in a sweat. Appreciate your chuckling a little bit. The servant said to him, "Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came?" But Abraham said to him, "Beware that you do not take my son back there." The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Now Eliezer asked this obvious question: what if she refuses to leave? Should I take Isaac to her? Abraham makes his intentions perfectly clear. Under no circumstances, under no circumstances is Isaac to leave Canaan. If I die, if if, if something happens to me, you make sure, Eliezer. Isaac doesn't leave this promised land. And here's what's cool. Isaac, the son of promise, never one time left the promised land in all of his life. Never left the promised land. Boy, I could park there, right? I don't want my kids to ever leave this promised land. Amen? Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he shall not depart from it. I want a church that's committed. I want a Sunday school program that's committed. I want a youth program that's committed. We're going to get our kids to the promised land, keep them in the promised land. We're not going to compromise, back off the message. We're going to stay strong and true, and we're going to do all that we can to make sure our kids, once in, never leave. Amen? Once in, never leave. I believe in the security of the believer. I've told you all this before. I used to walk in a, in such a way in my walk with God that I thought I was saved, lost, saved. Like it was a revolving door for me constantly. And I thought the trumpet was going to sound and, like, it was going to catch me, you know, as I tr- stumbled. And the trumpet going to sound. And Lord's like, I'm sorry, Donovan. You tripped up. You're going to hell like a bullet right now. Like, go to hell. And I, that's, I just, I just, that's what I thought. So I was always repenting. F- I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. I, I no longer walk that way because I'm 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 in Christ and there's a security there. But I don't believe in unconditional eternal security, which is a formal doctrine that once saved, always saved, can't ever be lost. I made some choices to get in this thing. I can make some choices to get out of them. I'm not robotic and I know this is a major, major area of contention throughout Christ the, the two thousand years uh, of of Christianity and Etc. But bottom line, I don't have time to get into it. I don't believe in once saved, always saved. I do believe in the security of the believer, though. The devil's a liar. The devil's a thief. The devil's going to try to get me under condemnation, get me to turn around and walk away and, and back down. But in the name of Jesus, with God's help, with the grace of God, I'm going to stand strong. I'm not going anywhere, and I'm trusting my Lord. I'm trusting in the blood. I'm trusting in the name. I confess my sin. I confess my faults, Etc. But I believe that we've lost too many young people. We've lost too many people. And part of the reason is we've had compromising ministries. We've had churches that have backed off and decided to try to make it as easy as possible on people, not challenge people to grow in their walk with God, thinking we'll just get more and more people. We might get more and more people, but I don't know if we've got them in this covenant stuff. Think about it. He's saying to Eliezer, this is how I want. You're going to swear to me, and here's how it's going to go down. What? It was so intense. It was so serious and sacred. God is watching you, Eliezer. And listen, don't ever let my kid go. And I just feel that challenge, right, as a a preacher, as a pastor. I don't want to lose anybody. If we get them in, let's keep them in, right? Let's just hang on to them. Let's love people, but let's stay true to the word. Let's challenge people. Let's uh, love them when they fall, love them when they stumble, but still challenge them. Get up. Move on. God's got a, a, a destiny for you, a calling on your life, and he wants to do great things through you. So I don't want to lose anybody in the same way that Isaac never left the promised land. Wouldn't it be great, Julie, if all the little kids coming up through wildlife kids, coming into young life, going through junior high and high school. You know one of the ways that can happen? Now, I'm just going to pastor you right now. Can I just be a pastor? One of the ways that can happen is if you push the church on your little darlings. Do you realize you don't have to teach a kid how to lie? You don't have to teach a kid how to steal. You don't have to teach a kid how to be selfish. My precious, wonderful, incredible, awesome, amazing, heavenly Lyra Jane has learned to arch her back and pitch a fit as you try to put her in the car seat for her own safety. I'm like, it's... Shocked me. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I thought her head was going to start spinning around, man. She's just like, just, you know, goes, I guess takes after Brendan. You know, I don't know. You got to teach your kid. You got to train your kids. This this philosophy, I'm just, just, I'm meddling. But this philosophy of, uh, well, I'm going to let my kids believe what they want to believe. Well, that's dumb. You better tell your kids what you're going to believe. As from me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. You put your, your legs under my table. Let me tell you the way it's going to be. Oh, I'm just going to let my kids make up their own mind. Well, they're going to make up their own mind to hate you. Because that discipline, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You love your kid, you better discipline that kid. Number 1, everybody's going to hate them. Hello. And number 2, this is good right here. And number 2, they're going to end up resenting you. It's crazy how that works. But whom the Lord that's a principle. You if you love your kid, you discipline your kid. I don't know how I got off on this, but it's good. You need a you need to discipline your children and one of the greatest ways you can help them stay in the promised land is to be positive concerning the church. You know, don't slam the church to your kids. Don't slam the preacher to your kids. Don't be that negative voice. There's a, hey, listen, let's be real. There's plenty of that, okay, outside these walls. Let's talk it up. Let's look at the positive. Let's 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 be excited about it. Let's get involved. Not do as I say, do as I do. Get involved with me. Come on. Let's 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 get involved. Let's, let's go to the house of the Lord together. Oh magnify the Lord with me. All right. Well there. You go. Uh thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that, Sabrina. I can't wait to get that accordion out again, Sabrina. So, uh, where's my, where am I in my notes? Um, are we in verse 10? The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made his camels kneel down outside the city of a well, uh, by a well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, Oh, Lord God of my master Abraham. See, so he's, he's this is covenant business. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please, let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed. For your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Guzik points out that essentially Eliezer asked God to guide through circumstances, providential circumstances. Now, let me just give you a a little bit of warning. That can be a very awesome way to discern the will of God, but can also be a disastrous way. If you want this to happen, Lord, then at 3 o'clock, let it rain. If you want this to happen, Lord, then, you know, whatever. Sometimes that works. It worked in this case, but that doesn't always work. I found that it doesn't always work, personally, okay? But in this case, it did. But notice, Eliezer established what he would look for before anything happened. He wasn't making it up as he went. Uh, and changing the rules, you know, to try to make it happen. Eliezer asked for a sign that was remarkable but possible in human terms. In other words, he didn't tempt God by asking for fire to fall from heaven or some kind of divine protection as he jumped off a building or whatever. Now, It would indeed take a remarkable woman to volunteer to water the camels. It's said that a camel can drink up to 20 gallons of water at a time. So watering 10 camels with a pitcher is a lot of hard work. But this is interesting. Eliezer wasn't looking for a good-looking girl. He was looking for a hard-working girl. He was looking for a girl that cared, that was compassionate. He wanted a woman of character, a woman whom God would choose. And before he even finished praying, boom, Rebecca showed up. Look at verse 15. And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. I, one of my favorite verses is Isaiah 65, 24. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Eliezer experienced just that. He didn't know that she was the one, but she shows up as he's praying. He's soon going to find out she is the one. Look at verses 16 through 21. Now, this young woman just so happens, thank the Lord, Isaac, you know, thank the Lord. Isaac's like, thank God. This young woman was very beautiful to behold. A virgin, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran. Eleazar runs to meet her and says, please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, I love this line, wondering at her. Just, he's in awe, remains silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Not only was she beautiful, she was moral, she was upstanding. And, and Eliezer runs to introduce, and and I, I love he's, he's, not only has he prayed, but he's put feet on his prayers. He's run out to this girl. And Rebecca began this this hard work of watering all the camels, and did not and and Eliezer did not stop her, and he he wanted to see if she'd really follow through. You know, it's one thing to talk about; it's another thing to do it. And she she did it, and and he wondered after her. Perhaps Eliezer knew that for some, it was a lot easier to just. Talk about having a servant's heart than actually having a servant's heart. And so here's this amazing woman, Rebecca. She enters the picture. Verses 22 through 28. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring, weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milca's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man, the man bowed his head, bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me being on the, on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Let me just stop right there and say this. How did Rebecca show up at the right time? How did she know to go out there? Why was she there at that time? What provoked her besides just having a good servant's heart? The angel of the Lord, the angels of God were with this man on this mission. They saw all this coming. They made it, they arranged it. This was a match made in heaven. So, fascinating. And check this out. Apparently, I did the measurements, the weights on this. Apparently, one-third of a pound golden nose rings were quite the thing in that culture. A third of a pound. I mean, is that going to make your nostrils sag? I'm just thinking, you know what I mean? Like, that's weighty. And four pounds of golden bracelets. Wow. That's a a lot. This is gold. Eleazar bowed and worshiped. I love that. Again, he knew it was the Lord. He knew it was the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abraham who had led him to find just the right girl for Isaac. Let me just say this. God knows what you need before you pray. God knows how to get it to you. God knows what you need. God knows who you should marry, who you should stay away from. Don't settle for less if you're single. Don't settle for second best. Let God get involved in your decision. God will lead you to the right I'm just gonna preach to you. Let me just take a second. I'm running out of time anyway. But Tyler and Tori, hey Amen. I don't know. Just sad. i just I I don't know why I said your name. You're just sitting right there. But listen, you just gotta make sure if you if you get God involved in your decision, God will lead you to the right. marrying the wrong person is the worst thing you can do. Getting in a relationship with the wrong person, wasting a lot of time, is one of the worst things that you can do in your life. But if, if you'll get, if you'll let, and, and that doesn't mean that God sends you to the right person and that person doesn't do something stupid or you do something stupid. Things can happen. I get it. But I'm going to tell you something. Your life will be much easier if you'll get God involved. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord Jesus. Get God involved in those things. Big time. Big stuff. And here we are. Here we have that happening. With Isaac. Look at verses 29 through 33. Because there's a bigger story here. And I'm closing out. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring. So Laban. Look look at this. This is interesting. He's like when he saw the nose ring. So Laban runs out. You know. And he's like. She's sparkling on the nose. Like wow. And like is it it pierced? Is it like is it costume? Like I don't know. Is it clipped on? I don't know. Is it Magnetic. I hadn't studied this out, but I'm just like, so he sees the nose ring and the bracelet on his sister's wrist. And when he heard the words of his sister, Rebecca, saying, thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man. And there he stood by the camels at the well. So he sees the nose ring, sees the gold bracelets. He sees all these camels. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? Now, this is Laban. We're going to see him later. He's a hustler. All right. He says, uh, Why stand outside? I prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house and unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, and he said, I will not eat until I have told my errand, told you about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So the father of Rebekah, Bethuel, was still alive. But Rebekah's brother, Laban, took the lead in representing the family. Maybe Laban was already known for his hustle, his ability to make deals, to gain the advantage. and, And Laban had spied out the gold and the camels, and he was motivated. To show some hospitality, rolls out the red carpet. Laban calls Eliezer the blessed of the Lord. And uh, I think he's probably sucking up a little bit, but on the other hand, when you're in a covenant relationship with God, blessings will follow. Then Eliezer, his commitment shines. He says, I'm not going to eat. He was fasting. I'm not going to eat. Until I've discharged my duty. I've come here for a purpose. And he recounts the story in verses 34 through 49. And um, I'm not going to go through that because it's the story we just read. And and, in verse 40, notice, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. Again, the angel is with Eliezer, and so then he tells the story, and so off she goes, look at verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord, we cannot speak to you either bad or good, here is Rebekah before you, take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, Man, this is the way it was done back in the day, arranged marriages, you know, against them when I was single, for them when I had kids. Verse 52, And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. So in line of the evident hand of God's providence, And the wealth of the servant's master, the answer seemed obvious to Rebecca's brother and father. She needs to go. And so this agreement of marriage is made, and here you have basically a dowry that's being uh, 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 paid. And it's showing the financial ability of Abraham and of Isaac. Stand with me right now. We're going to finish this out. Verses 54 through 60. At least I'll introduce this. (coughs) And... And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that, she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may... Listen to this wording. This is, again, prophetic. They didn't even know what they were tapping into. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. One of the most remarkable things about Rebekah was that she was willing to go. I will go those are words of faith the servant was determined to leave immediately God's prospered me on this mission and I must stay the chorus Dr. Donald Barnhouse says that if the world does not succeed in persuading the believer to abide in the world it will seek to delay his exit Remember when Paul preached and Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost. Maybe tomorrow. When you decide to go with the Lord, the world will applaud your devotion, but they'll say, don't rush off. Just stay for a few more days, and then you can go. Rebecca is such a picture, as we'll see. Such a picture of the bride of Christ. I want to introduce this. Next time, we're going to deal with this. Here you have the father sending a servant, an unnamed servant, to find, to gather a bride for his son. It's such a picture of the Holy Spirit drawing, wooing, getting a bride for his son, the bride of Christ. And that bride saying, I will go. I've never seen this son, my husband. I've never seen him. But you tell me great things. You've given me gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. I know there's, this is just a down payment on what is to come and Rebecca's like I'm not going to tarry I'm going, I'm in I'm all in it's such a picture of the church such a picture of us brothers and sisters we were out here doing our own thing the Holy Spirit broke into our world broke into our lives and said I want to reveal some truth to you there's a home prepared for you it's bigger than this small world that you're used to I want to expand your vista, your horizon. I want to show you some things. And as members of the Bride of Christ, we said, I'm in, and I'm headed that way. Does that make sense? And I want to tell you something else. There's a whole lot more that are getting on board in this church house. God's going to send us to some hungry people. God's going to use you and me as we reach out and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about a destiny that he has for you. Let me tell you about some gifts he has for you. God wants to do some great things. Can you lift your hands to him right now?